Hello, Gaggle listeners. It's Ron Hansen. Today we have a bonus episode for you. City Council candidates Sam Stone and Kevin Robinson are running to replace longtime seat holder Sal DeCicio. The NAACP, the National Coalition of 100 Black Voters, and the League of Women Voters hosted the District 6 candidates in a public debate. Here it is in full. Well, hello. First of all, I'd like to welcome you all to tonight. Uh, I don't like to call it a debate. I like to call it an informative uh, session. Uh, That's really what this is about. It's an opportunity for you to meet the two candidates who are running for a seat in District 6. Uh, Let me start off by saying that I'm not in District 6 and none of the panel are in District 6. So we wanted to make sure that this was very neutral and very fair. I live in Gilbert, so uh, long, long ways away, right? My name is Dr. Dwayne McIntosh, and I will be moderating the uh, informative forum tonight. Uh, please feel free, if you have questions of the candidates, uh, please you know, write them down on a card. We will be collecting them, and at towards the end, we will go ahead and uh, ask those questions of the candidate. Let's please be respectful. Uh, I always believe that we can share a different view, but at the end of the day, we should be respectful of our differences, right? And that's what a true democracy is, is where people can voice their opinion and do it in a respectful way that doesn't impede on someone else's uh, opportunity to do the same. So I would just ask that we all be mindful of that as the night progresses. Uh, The format that we will be using this evening First of all, let me welcome the candidates, if I can, Uh, Mr. Stone and Mr. Robinson. We would like to thank you and welcome you uh, this evening to, uh, uh, I'm sure that you guys have a lot of information that you'd like to share with the constituents, and I'm sure they have a lot of questions for you that they would like to have answers to. So we would like to welcome you at this time. The format that we will be using this evening, ladies and gentlemen, will be the following, is, is that, Um, each candidate will have uh, two and a half minutes to introduce themselves, okay? Uh, Once that happens, then we will go ahead and each candidate will will alternate as far as the questions being asked of them. The question of the candidate that's being asked of, they will have two and a half minutes in order to state their answer to the question. The other candidate at that point will have one and a half minutes to respond or rebut you know, whatever the question was. The reason that we're doing it is because we want to be mindful of your time and theirs as well. Uh, So again, uh, the question will be alternate, meaning one candidate will have one question, the next question will go to the next candidate, and the candidate that the question is for will have two and a half minutes to respond, and the other candidate will have one and a half minutes to rebut that. And then also, Uh, Towards the end, we do have some questions that is already, we solicited by emails, questions, or solicited people to send in questions that they may have from the district. We have formulated uh, several of those questions. However, depending on the time factor and how many questions we get from the audience will determine how many of those questions will be asked. We're going to take priority. We've said that we're going to have the audience questions take priority over any other questions. It's only fair. You chose to be here. That shows that you have a lot of concerns. So therefore, we want to respect that and make sure that we can get as many of the audience questions asked as possible. 
okay? And then at the end, each candidate will have three minutes for closing remarks. Uh, if you guys need to use the restrooms, uh, the ladies' restroom is right here. The men's restroom is right there behind that welcome sign right back here. Also, over to your right, we have some water and, oh, okay, <laughs> thank you. So <laughs> the restrooms are over to your right, okay? And so the ladies' restroom is right there, right behind this table. The men's restroom is right behind the welcome sign right here by the door. Also, on, uh, to your right, there's a table with a lot of cookies and water. I really need your help. I'm on a diet, right? So if you guys don't want me to go on, uh, you know, TV news or something blaming you for how, you know, I am, then please help me and help yourself, please, really. No, please stop by and grab something to eat and something to drink, okay? Um, any other housekeeping? I think we got it. So I, I've just seen here that each candidate will have three and a half minutes for closing remarks, not three minutes, okay? So I stand corrected. Uh, at this time, uh, like I said, my name is Dr. Dwayne McIntosh. I'm a native from Tucson, uh, native Arizona, by the way, of Tucson. It's kind of ironic. I went to the U of A, got my graduate degrees from Northern Arizona, and taught at ASU. So go figure that one, right? But uh, nevertheless, uh, at this time, I'm going to have the panel introduce themselves, and then we're going to have the candidates introduce themselves, and then we're going to go move right into the questions. Thank you. <clears throat> good evening, candidates, and good evening, uh, District 6 residents. My name is Donna Williams. I am an attorney and business owner. I live in Goodyear, Arizona. I'm also a chapter president of one of the host organizations, the National Coalition of 100 Black Women, Phoenix Metropolitan Chapter. Pleasure to be here this evening. Thank you. Good evening, candidates. Uh, I am uh, Kara Pelletier. I am a volunteer with the League of Women Voters, which is a over 100-year voting rights organization. I'm very pleased to be here. I am not a member or a citizen, rather, of District 6. I live in Cave Creek. And I'm very happy to be here and look forward to our program. You ready? Okay, let's start with the first question. No, I'm sorry, your candidate's opening statements. Thank you. I'm ready to go. I would be remiss if we didn't allow Mr. Danny White. He's been very instrumental. This man is a real pillar of the community. I know he's very modest and he doesn't really want me to say it, but I'm going to say it anyway. This man works feverishly to bring people together so that uh, to bring people together so that we can get information that is very important like I always believed is is that the more information we have the better decision we can make and so feverishly this man has worked to make it happen not only in this election but all the elections prior so without further ado I'd like to uh, welcome Danny White to say a few words thank you Dr. McIntosh and I'm sure everybody's ready for this debate to get forward so thank you all for being here this evening. Thank First Institutional for the uh, use of this magnificent facility. And uh, let's get on with it. Like you said, there's a lot of water and cookies over there. So before it's over, everybody make sure you get a few. Thank you so much. I, I think Danny came here tonight to just show us up as the show. 
Uh, my name is Sam Stone. I am the former Chief of Staff for Phoenix City Councilman Sal DeCicio. I have worked uh, for about the last 14, 15 years in the political realm, candidates, elections, all that kind of thing. I've shifted primarily into policy at this point in my career. Um, so my focus is really in this race about the things that Phoenix needs to do to improve our future and the policies that can help get us there. Um, little background on me, I was born in Boston uh, to a father who at one time was a very high-ranking official in the California Democratic Party. I grew up as a Democrat. We moved to upstate New York when I was about six and then here when I was 15. And uh, I, I was a Democrat until my early 20s. The reason I moved away from that is my obsession is with civil rights and liberties, the Bill of Rights. And I have really tried to focus everything I've done on advancing the opportunity within that framework. And that's the focus I'm bringing here tonight and, and hopefully to this office as well. Um, I think Kevin is a, a high quality opponent. I think though that I can present something different for the people of Phoenix. I come at things from a different perspective. The council, no matter what happens in this race, will have a Democrat supermajority going forward. And so a lot of my focus is not so much on what we're doing or why we're doing it. Every politician likes to talk about those things. It's the how we're doing it. And Phoenix is in a budget crush that will continue for the next 23 to 28 years, more or less, uh, because of past due pension obligations. And uh, a lot of my focus is how we squeeze greater efficiency out of the things we do so that we can fund all those programs that people want to see funded. And I like to say that if you're the most progressive person in this room, you probably need me more than anyone else because there's no one else focusing on that stuff at City Hall right now. And that's why I'm asking for your vote and your support. And I would like to thank our sponsors, the NAACP of Arizona, League of Women Voters, 100 Black Women of Arizona, and the, uh, I'm going to get this wrong, uh, but FIBC, I'll, I'll just, Thank you all for providing this great facility. We really appreciate being here. Thank you. First Institutional Baptist Church, I, you know. But anyway, um, Kevin Robinson, I've lived in Phoenix since 1974, so 49 years. With the Phoenix Police Department starting in December of 1980, spent the next 36 and a half years serving the citizens of Phoenix on the department. During that time, had the opportunity to um, earn a number of awards, and I mention that because in the service of the citizens of Phoenix, I was awarded the two highest awards that the Phoenix Police Department gives out, the Medal of Valor and the Medal of Merit, and I earned those two in the process of serving citizens of Phoenix. And if this isn't, oh, up front. And from there, after 36 and a half years, retired from the Phoenix Police Department, been teaching at Arizona State University in the criminal justice program where I have an opportunity to interact with a lot of young folks who are hoping to make a difference in our community, either in criminal justice, law enforcement, um, in the social, social work arena, or maybe even going to law school. So I have a wide range of students that I, I have an opportunity to impact over the course of my teaching. Um, 
through all the years I've been in Phoenix, I want to hit a little bit on some um, nonprofit work that I've done. Back in the early 80s, started with the Kiefer Boys Club down, Boys and Girls Club down in South Phoenix, where I volunteered time to work with at Youth Risk. And during that time, I've worked with a variety of uh, nonprofit organizations, everything from the Foster Care Review Board to the Arizona Judicial Council, to the Arizona Police Officer Standards and Training Board, to Valley Leadership, and a host of things. My um, primary, primary um, charity that I enjoy working with has been the um, Ronald McDonald House Charity is a central in Northern Arizona, which provides a home away from home for families and children who are dealing, for families whose children are dealing with significant health issues. I mention all of those things because there's a little bit of a pattern to what I, what I have been able to do, and that has been a service to our community. I, um, I'm married, my wife Michelle is a physician here who's counting down the days till she retires in June. Three kids, two of them got married this past year, so the family is growing. And Michelle and I, several years ago, started the um, Alice Catherine Foundation and Alice Catherine is a Halyard Robinson Family Foundation where we fund several several scholarships to deserving youth and actually have a scholarship named after the woman who introduced Michelle and I to one another, Judge Jean Williams, and some of you may know Judge Williams. I mention all that because there's a pattern to how I conduct my life and what I've done, and it's of service to others. So as we go through this, I think you'll hear from both Sam and I how we hope to impact the city of Phoenix and the citizens, and it's by serving and serving others. So thank you very much. Thank you both for those introductions. Let's get right into the questioning. Candidate Stone, what are the three most pressing issues facing District 6, and how will you address them? Well, first, I, I, I don't really separate District 6 from the rest of Phoenix on these issues, and I believe the three most critical issues facing us are homelessness, uh, the policing issue that we have in terms of maintaining law and order on our streets, and lastly, housing, which is becoming a bigger and bigger crisis by the day. And so I think it's absolutely critical that the city start looking at new ways to do things in all these areas. For instance, Right now, we're building low-income housing, supportive housing, at a cost of about $350,000 per unit. The problem with that is that's more than is spent to build the most expensive luxury apartments in Phoenix. And by increasing our cost that badly, by tying ourselves in knots, the city is limiting the number of housing units we can actually produce. Uh, that's just one example. Go down the list with what we're doing here. We're down, depending on who you ask, 800, 1,200 officers from where we need to be. The impact of that loss is, isn't being felt as much in District 6 as it is in the lowest income, poorest areas of our city. And so we really need to turn that around. We need a council that will stand up, uh, hold officers accountable, certainly when they do wrong, but at the same time, is willing to stand behind our officers and understand that most of them are doing it for the very right reasons and they're doing an exceptional job and we need to have more of them on the street here. Uh, and lastly, we have a 
institutional problem right now at the city of Phoenix. For the next nine years, they're projecting max tax increases just to keep up with our existing costs. But we also have a lot of people moving here and a lot of needs, including a lot for homelessness. This is an issue I've been really focused on for the last five, six years. I'm part of a working group with the Salvation Army, Jeff Taylor, and a number of people there who are working along with organizations like Phoenix Rescue Mission to change the paradigm in homelessness and really start focusing on getting people into treatment and off the streets rather than continuing to enable chronic street homelessness. And so that's my focus and I'm gonna do everything I can to address those and many other issues. Thank you. In response to it, Sam and I have had an opportunity to do several of these, and the focus is pretty much the same. Public safety, which I think is the responsibility of every elected official in, um, at any level of government, ensuring that the public is safe and sound and secure in their homes, where they work, where they go to school, a little bit of everything. So public safety is um, priority one, and I've been hearing that at the door knock at doors and talk to citizens. The issues surrounding home affordability, homelessness, it's a multi-issue problem and most definitely um, needs attention from the city. And I think where Sam and I may disagree on that a little bit is how to go about doing it. We both want to get to the right position, but it's how we go about doing it. So, and lastly, with me, it has been public safety, the homelessness and home affordability, and we're also hearing a great deal from people about water and where we stand with water. We're in a desert, and there's been a host of issues surrounding that. City's moving in the right direction in so many areas, but again, it's how we get there. Okay, second question, we'll go to Kenneth Robinson first. How will you work with council members with divergent views from your own? Um, all the council members, one of the things I did when I first entered into the race, I reached out to each and every one of the council members saying, hey, you know, I hope to be successful in this endeavor and would welcome an opportunity to sit down and talk to you so that we can establish or start to establish that, relation, that working relationship. Was able to do just that with almost everybody. There were two of them had not had an opportunity to talk to and I've since run into them and they said, we'll find the time to do so. I, 36 and a half years in law enforcement, one of the things I was known for is able to work through problems with people who may have different um, views than I, but it's about developing a partnership, collaborating in order to hopefully, in my mind's eye, especially with other council members, is to help mold a consensus on some issues. When you sit down and talk to folks, I think you ultimately realize and find out that you're not too far apart. Again, it's just about how you go about getting there. So I expect to be able to work effectively with each and every one of the council members. I've reached out to them, I've talked to them, I've met with them, and I expect to um, do what I have always done and worked effectively for the greater good of the citizens of Phoenix. I think one of the funny things is I have a reputation of not being able to get along with people at City Hall, which is kind of the furthest thing from the truth, because I was actually friends with most of the folks on the 11th floor and most of the staffers there also. Carlos Garcia, who I disagree with on absolutely everything politically, I get along with personally uh, very well. Um, Betty Gardado, we have you know a little more area of 
of confluence between us, but we get along great. Laura Pastor, I consider her a friend, and, and Michael Peterson and Corvia in her office, a, a very good friend. Um, frankly, I've never had a, any difficulty working with people across the aisle. Look, I, I understand if I go in there that my ideological views put me in the minority. I know that I'm gonna have to be able to work with and convince people that my ideas have merit. And I'm not gonna do that by being a jerk to everybody. It's not my nature to begin with. Can I get a little testy? Yeah, because I fight hard for the things I believe in. But at the end of the day, I've always maintained good relationships with the people around me of every political denomination, every race and religion and character. Look, I think we are in a place right now where this country needs to turn down the heat on both sides and we need to start figuring out how to work together again. And the, be the best way to do that is relationships. When I first got in this business, I used to go to a thing called Drinking Liberally on Tuesday night with a bunch of the uh, Democrat operatives in Tucson. And then a couple of years later, we had a blast. We'd go out, get plowed, all of us together. Then we'd go back to uh, fighting each other on Wednesday morning. And a few years ago, that stopped. People started criticizing anyone for having those kind of personal relationships with the other side. We've got to get away from that. Got to take it into a, a much more practical level and start figuring out how to communicate again. Candidate Stone, um, you talked about this a little bit um, in your opening remarks, but obviously the entire city is facing an affordable housing crisis. How will you address this issue, not only in District 6, but citywide? So actually yesterday morning, I was at a symposium with a group called Home Arizona that featured academics, government officials from across the state, builders, developers, um, talking about this very issue. And there's a couple of things we need to do right off the bat. One of those is we need to shorten the timeline for developing new housing. If it takes two, three, four years from conception to put a shovel in the ground, we're adding a huge amount to the cost of every unit. We've gotta clean that up. There's no reason a zoning case needs to take more than six months. You can get plenty of public input in that time. There's no reason a permitting decision needs to take more than 90 days. So we've really gotta to push to achieve those things. There's some other things, and just in terms of our code, um, you know, think about the closet you have for your water heater, right? Um, the reason we have a separate closet for water heaters is they used to blow up and fire through people's roofs. That's not the case anymore, but also you can get a tankless water heater. That 10, 12 square feet that goes into that costs 10, $12,000 or more, right? So if you wanna get rid of and reduce housing costs, we really need to go through code and ordinance and start figuring out what is beneficial and isn't and cutting those things away. And then the other thing we need to do is, look, everyone has to work together. The developers I've talked to, they have to be willing to take a, a smaller cut. The builders may have to be willing to take a smaller cut. We're all in this community together. If you wanna sell luxury housing, you better figure out how to provide affordable housing for the workforce to, that's gonna be serving those people at restaurants and, and that are totally essential for everyday life. So. It's gotta be an all of the above approach and everyone's gotta be pulling together. Thank you, with regard to affordable housing, you know, one of the things I have done is to try to understand the issue more completely. 
and had the opportunity to sit down with a host of developers, a host of builders, um, a little bit of everybody, folks in the, um, in the attainable housing community to understand, like I said, to understand completely about what the issues happen to be. Brian Gorman, who is the CEO of the, um, Brian Swanton, who's the CEO of the Gorman Corporation, I said that backwards, um, largest builder of affordable homes in the United States, and spent a great deal of time with him at several projects in and around this neighborhood, in Edson, um, in the Edson neighborhood, and up around Dupavie and some other areas, and looking at the projects that they have done, it's tremendous, and what it has taken is a, is a partnership. It's taken the builders, the developers, and the city, and we can't forget how big of a role that the city plays, all of them coming together, figuring out what needs to be done, and moving forward from there. You know, like I said, Sam and I have done a lot of these, and the, the our, our hope is to get to the point where we can have the affordable housing. It's the idea of how we get there, and I think it's gonna be about the partnerships. I think it's gonna be about the, avail the availability of the willingness of everyone involved to um, take the necessary steps that need to be done. Thank you. Okay, thank you both. Candidate Robinson, if you could assign a letter grade to the current city council for effectiveness, what grade would you give them and why? A grade for the current city council? I think it depends. Depends on the issue. I know that there is a um, concerted effort to work more collaboratively together that hasn't been um, as successful as they hope to have been. So an overall grade, and I teach, looking at the effort that's put into it, the end result, I would probably give them a C plus or a B minus. They're moving in the right direction, wanting to do the right things, working, trying to work together on issues that are of concern to the overall public. And you, you know, from what I have seen and what I've heard and read, that they are listening to the public a great deal. And I don't know how you can be in these roles, be in this position, and not listen to the public. So from that standpoint, based on what I have seen and heard, a C plus, B minus in that area. I actually give it a pretty solid B. I think the council's done a good job in a lot of areas. They've done a poor job in some. And so average it out, it's, it's a lot of A's and a lot of C's. Um, I, I think we need to focus on the areas that we're not doing very well. Housing, obviously, is one of them. Homeless is another. Uh, but we have done really well with some, uh, some of the planning for the city, you've seen the rebirth of downtown, the urban cores that we have around the city are an excellent idea. We need to expand upon those right now. Um, look, there's a lot of things that they've done well over the years. And one of the reasons for that, I believe, is that the city of Phoenix, unlike many of our big coastal cities that are struggling much more right now than we are, has had balance. We've always had a nice mix of people on the council coming to it from different ideas and different perspectives. I can't point to a city that's well run with uniparty control. And on the left or the right, I, I just can't do it. Same thing at the state level. I really think our system is designed for the push and pull of political, two political parties with different views. And that's really critical for us to maintain going forward. And that's quite frankly at stake right now in this election. In this one and in the D8 race, where you have Carlos Garcia's kind of outside the mainstream, but has brought some interesting ideas that deserve consideration. We need to preserve that.
Thank you both. So residents have complained about the traffic congestion um, in this district and other districts in Phoenix. What strategies can be used to address the traffic concerns? You know, I, I always like to go, when we're talking about a new development deal, everyone now is, is pretty much against any new development. No one wants anything built next to them because for the first time since the 90s, we've achieved such explosive growth, it's really difficult. And I think if you break it down, and really sit and talk to people, you find out that their major issue is traffic. So that's really important. Um, look, I'm not a big fan of light rail because it's inflexible and it costs too much. I am a huge fan of bus rapid transit. And so I think it's essential right now that we look at creating a bus rapid transit system that is valley-wide, that moves people very quickly between entertainment centers, work centers, those sorts of things in their home areas features a more flexible approach to public transit. Um, but then you also have to look at the elements of how people get from the end of that line, that last quarter mile, that last half mile. It's never gonna happen if people have to do it in bare sun and 120 degree heat. So when you're talking about transit, you also have to talk about heat mitigation. You have to talk about all the other things that go along with making a walkable, livable city. And while we've had a good focus on, on some elements of mass transit, we have not had a good focus of putting all those elements together. And so that's really what I'm hoping to do in there as we do this. We, for instance, put a, a standalone BRT line out that they approved last year. You should never do that. It has to be connected. It has to be built as a unified idea. You know, we have to continue with uh, the light rail to um, people to use um, the transit system, light rail, buses. But what we also have to do is make an investment in technology. Technology from a standpoint, there are a host of things that can be done that allows Phoenix to be from a traffic standpoint. And, you know, when we sit back and think about what other cities are doing, it's not a bad thing to copy other ideas from other places. If you travel through Tucson at all, you know that everything is synchronized as you go through the lights. If you stay at a certain speed, more left-hand turn lights, there are a host of things that we should look at study and implement as soon as possible. And in and of itself, it'll speed traffic along, it'll make things safer, and I think that's what's most important. Thank you. Okay, there we go. So at this time, what I'd like to do is I'd like to open it up to the audience. Uh, we're gonna have a little change I know some of you wrote, wrote those downs, but I want to give those, if you're like me, even though I got all these degrees, I don't know how to spell, so I probably would not write a question. So at this point in time, I'd like to give the audience an opportunity to ask a question. Is there anyone that'd like to ask a question? Stand up. Nobody has a question? Y'all drove all this long way for no question? Go ahead and state your name. Howdy, y'all. My name is Matthew Martinez. I actually wrote down my question on my phone. This is for both candidates. Can you all hear me? There we go. R should residents have any concern whether either candidate truly knows their district? 
question. The question is, should, should residents have any concern about whether either candidate truly knows their district? So, so the question is, is that should the community be concerned as to the knowledge of the community by the candidate? Go ahead, if he wants to restate if, it. I could restate it if necessary. I believe that the, the constituents in, in a district should know that their candidate, and the candidate should know the constituents within the district. My question for both candidates are, is it important for the candidate, which both of you, should know the constituents and the needs for your, your, your district? Is that important? Okay, th thank you, I, I'm, and I apologize. Um, and I may have to speak up. Well, anyway, um, yeah, we should know the residents. We 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 are all problems by folks by understanding who they are, the neighborhoods they live in. What um, I have been fortunate from. You want to switch? <laughs> okay. Thank you. Um, well, I've been fortunate, as I mentioned earlier, 36 and a half years in the Phoenix Police Department. During that time, I have worked in virtually every single city neighborhood that we have out there. I've worked in every precinct within the city of Phoenix. I currently am enjoying the support of each and every one of those neighborhood groups right now. I, I, should, I should say probably at least 90% of them. Um, I have been working with them so in the process of meeting with them, talking to them, I think I've been doing a really good job of understanding what their concerns are, and it is a part and partial what the job entails, being able to talk to the community, the residents, and making sure you have that open line of communication so that they know they can get to you and they can voice their concerns that they have and you can respond to them accordingly. Yeah, absolutely you should. Look, those neighborhood groups don't make endorsements in political races, so there's certainly members that are supporting Kevin and there are members that are supporting me in every single one of them. Look on my website, you'll see I have different priorities laid out for each neighborhood in the city. Ahwatukee, Arcadia, Orangedale, Biltmore, up into Sunny Slope, North Central. Each one has different needs and priorities. And so I have spent years deeply vested in this district. When I started working for Sal, I actually lived in District 8, literally just on the other side of the street from District 6. And about a year later, I moved, in part because I felt it was important that the people that were representing and serving the district live in the district. And I am, you know, a, a very close, uh, I have close relationships with a huge number of people throughout there, the district. And win or lose, I'm going to maintain those relationships and continue to work for this city and continue to do these things. I'm not walking away. And that's something that I think is, is a little different up here. So. Okay. We have another question over here. Thank you. For Candidate Stone, you mentioned a moment ago that you believe that you should have both sides of the aisle. How do you reconcile that with your work for Candidate Lake and all the things that went on in terms of that? Because certainly if she had won, we wouldn't have divided government at the state level. 
Well, I mean, first you certainly would. You'd still have plenty of Democrat representatives and senators serving at the state, and they would have input as well. Um, but, you know, look, my contract with Kerry Lake ended November 15th. I'm not part of the election challenges. I don't believe in moving forward. On, I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't believe in moving backwards. I don't think you can overturn past elections. I've never said you could. My focus is always on the next election and what we can do to make our, our city, our state, our country better going forward. So. You know, why did I work for Carrie Lake? Very, very simple. Carrie Lake agreed 100% to forward three policies that I believe very deeply are necessary for the future of the state of Arizona. Number one, the policy on homelessness and changing the paradigm to leading with services. Number two, securing a new source of sustainable fresh water for the state. The city of Phoenix has a supply that will last us a hundred plus years underneath us, but the rest of the state is in dire straits. In a hundred years, sad to say, is not very long in government time. Uh, and the third one was something a little bit novel. I called it a dual track education system. I wanted to embed, see us embed CTEC, CTED programs in every high school in the state and give kids an opportunity after the 10th grade to continue on a four-year college track or to take and earn a certificate, technical certificate, anything from welding to coding. Um, for one thing, the people who actually take those courses have much higher rates of graduation and, and even college achievement than people who don't. And I think that the biggest single hole in our workforce is that area of skilled, high-skilled labor. We just don't have enough people. And so that's a big, big focus of mine. And look, I will support any candidate who wants to support and forward those three things right now. I think they are the three things that could vault this state into the future. Any other questions? Well, I, I think it was more a direct question to Sam, him having worked for um, Kerry Lake. Uh, you know, I, <clears throat> I don't have a whole lot to say about it, to be honest with you. I understand that Sam is a political individual. He's been involved in a lot of different campaigns. Uh, this is all very new to me from a standpoint of, I've always been understanding of politics and such, but I'm the type of person who believes that politics needs to be less controversial than what it has been, less confrontational. I think we need to tone it down a little bit. We need to make sure we're able to talk, represent the folks effectively, and I don't want to be a part of, nor do I support any divisive types of back and forth politics that doesn't move us forward. So, you know, I, I think Sam's answer, he answered the, the issue, but that's, that's where I stand. I, I just don't like how negative politics has gotten over the years and what it has done to folks, what it has done to our communities, what it, is, um, what it has the potential to do to us as a country. I think you know, the rule of law is important. It always has been to me. And you go by the results and you live with it. If you want to change things, you wait another two, four, six years, whatever it happens to be, and you um, go to the ballot box and you make your voice heard there. All righty, thank you. So let me just reiterate that uh, each candidate will have two minutes to respond to the question if they choose to do so. So it may be to a specific candidate, 
but in this kind of form, we wanted to give both of them equal time to, to respond. Um, what is your guys' stance on bringing water back to District 6? Bringing water back to District 6? You know, I, I don't look at it just as District 6. I look at it as a city. What we are doing, what the city is doing, is we're in Tier 2 right now. You know, the city itself, as Sam mentioned, and most a lot of folks know, is we have about a 100-year supply of groundwater. But as Sam also said, it's not going to last us forever, uh, and 100 years will move along pretty fast. What we should be doing is, as a collective, as a whole, and I'm talking the entire city, we need to make sure the city is educating the overall public as to what methods they should be taking now, what steps they should be taking now to save as much water as we possibly can. And there are a host of things that are out there. It starts with education. Um, I was walking and talking with a group in a neighborhood the day before yesterday, and the issue of water conservation came up. And they were disappointed that they felt that the city wasn't doing enough in letting people know what they should be doing or what steps they can be taking. So I would encourage the city, or I will voice my concern about the city doing a better job of educating people about what we can do together, all of us, because that's what it's gonna take. Just bringing water back to District 6, unless there's something I'm not aware of or I'm missing, I'm more about the entire city being conservative in its efforts when it comes to water. Well, so first, Always, always look to your own house, right? Um, right now, about 10% of our potable water is lost to leaks in our pipe system. The city has been aggressive about addressing that, but we need to continue to be aggressive and be even more so. Uh, there's probably a greater loss return in our sewer system that also needs to be looked at. We do recycle 100% of the water that goes through our taps and down our drains here, but we need everyone else to do the same. Look, statewide, Phoenix has led the way and I am absolutely uh, supportive of everything they've done, but we need to help lead the way for all the other cities and towns. And there's a three-stage approach to this. One is conservation. We can improve what we're doing here. I'm a big fan of, I don't like the city calls it xeriscaping, which everyone hears xeriscaping and they build rock gardens, which add to the heat islanding effect. What we need to be talking about is turf to trees. We need to take out and encourage people to replace grass with trees. Trees actually reduce groundwater depletion by helping cool the topsoil and reduce uh, evaporation. So that's one. Two is there's a lot of things we can do in the state in terms of water swaps, things with the tribes. Uh, they have a lot of water rights that we can help move around and allocate. City of Phoenix has been a good partner in that and will continue to be a good partner in that and help the state patch through the next few years. But again, I'll go back to eventually you better darn well get a new source of fresh water that we can bring into the state. It's gonna cost a lot, but we used to understand you can do great things when you, when you really go after them. Let's <laughs> 
My question for both candidates, you've mentioned um, public safety as a top priority. We've seen that increased pay, signing bonuses, and additional funding for law enforcement has not improved the shortage of officers or decreased crime in our area or any area in the city of Phoenix. How would you propose the city address these issues without throwing more money at the problem? Yeah, we'll just go back and forth. Whoever went first before the other. Well, first, you do have to continue to throw a little bit more money at the problem. Mr. Robinson was one of the last beneficiaries of the DROP program where he was able to serve past the 30-year pension point and then able to take home a significant amount of money at the end of his career as compensation for not getting any additional pension benefits. The city and the state took that away, but what we need to do is restore a responsible matching drop program for our first responders. Um, secondly, we have done a lot to increase pay. Now it's about council support. Understand, I 100% agree, and every good cop will tell you, as I'm sure Mr. Robinson can attest, that the worst thing on the force to them is a bad officer, a bad apple, they want them out of there and we'll hold them accountable. But at the end of the day, what we need to do is make sure they understand that the council will have their back. And that hasn't consistently been the case. So you had an incident here very recently, uh, quite frankly, that I thought was a setup where the officer, uh, you had a Wall Street Journal reporter outside a bank dressed like a homeless guy asking people questions about their banking. They got a trespass call on him officer handled it exactly per policy but then the mayor came down on that officer well here's the thing that's that's the policy she helped write and signed off on that this council signed off on so if you've got a problem with the policy hold the politicians accountable if an officer follows policy and they do what they're supposed to do we have to stand behind them and the city hasn't done a good job of that make sure you're clear on the difference and stand behind them when they're done their job the right way. I have the, the support of all the law enforcement associations in the state of Arizona. I have the support of the, all the firefighter associations in the state of Arizona. I mention that because I've had extended conversations with them. And the shortages that we're experiencing within the Phoenix Police Department are experience, or shortages we're seeing nationwide. Phoenix, it's not an anomaly. There are a variety of reasons why people are no longer or they're re retiring from law enforcement. What we have to do is make sure folks understand how attractive a city the city of Phoenix is as an employer. I'm a, benefit, a benefactor of that, and um, Sam mentioned it. I did retire from the Phoenix Police Department and enjoy an incredible retirement program. If it's something that we can bring back to entice folks, that's one portion of it. But more importantly, I think what we need are folks like myself who can speak to the benefits of having had a City of Phoenix job and how good of an employer it actually is. City Council itself has to be um, promotive of the police and fire departments. They have, and Sam used the phrase, they have to have their backs. But I think more than anything else, what they have to do is demonstrate that they're looking for quality employees to come and serve the citizens of Phoenix in both the police and fire services. And I know I can do that better than anyone leading the council, helping to make sure that is to the forefront of what the council's doing. 
Uh, Aaron Searles, a uh, small business owner and actually former, former District 6 staffer. So I'm very well kind of the needs, uh, the uniqueness of District 6. And one of the things I want to ask, what are your plans for small business assistance, uh, especially when we have a lot of the small businesses kind of still reeling and feeling the effects of COVID? Still reeling and feeling the effects of COVID. Um, with regard to small businesses still feeling the result of COVID, um, I've sat down with Sandra Watson of the, of the Arizona Commerce Authority. I've sat down with a variety of small business owners throughout the district, talking to them about what can we as a city do to make things more effective for them. We need to speed up the permitting processes. There are a lot of things like that that will help them as they move forward with their businesses. Uh, I smoke, spoke with a... Um, it was a veterinary clinic that was opening up in Ahwatukee a few weeks ago. Sat with the owners before and after, and they waited about nine months to get the permitting processes through. And that is way too long. It's those types of things, just sitting down, understanding, being available, and then trying to find out what's the best route for us to take to solve that problem because we we are or we want to see the city to continue to grow and in order for that to happen we have to make it easier for businesses to grow in our communities and small businesses are the backbone of each and every one of our communities we have to make it easier for them to do the work that they want to do move forward allowing them to operate much quicker more effectively or efficiently and I think we will all benefit from it. I think the city of Phoenix has done an A job of helping big business and an F job of helping small business, quite frankly. I mean, so if we go back to that grading system, look, the focus can't just be on these big businesses. And I've talked to small business owners all over the city. The number one issue they have right now is workforce. It's finding people who can help them keep their stores and their businesses up and running. And so workforce development is absolutely essential going forward. It's one of the things that where Phoenix does it, we do it very well. And we help people gain the skills they need to improve their lives by getting better jobs. We need to expand those programs, working with the community colleges, working with the CTEC, CTED system, all of those things. But the other thing is, if we're giving incentives to big businesses, you're, you're really putting the hammer down on small businesses. You're giving those big corporations an advantage that they shouldn't have. And so we really have to start focusing on small businesses and local startups. I think one of the biggest concerns I have is that as we move to a tech economy, too much of the tech economy is build and sell, and they don't develop the connections to the community that we need. We need to really encourage businesses that are built here will grow here. And that's going to be a lot of my focus. come to you. <laughs> it might take me a minute, but I'll get there. There you go, sir. Thank you. So you guys have talked uh, a good amount about water. There's been some questions about it, but more so on the efforts of kind of sustainability in a District 6 level. What are the top three things you guys would do immediately upon being elected to the council? And what are three of the things that you think uh, we currently do that may be retroactive or uh, less than fully helpful. 
Well, first, turf to trees, which I mentioned before. We really need to incentivize people to take out grass wherever they're able and willing to and replace it with trees and native shrubs and grasses, things that don't need to be watered. Um, that is number one. Number two, we need to improve transit options for people who need to be able to get around. That's been a big issue. Um, obviously, it is a big issue in parts of District 6, but at the end of the day, large parts of our district are not going to be heavily transit-enabled at any time in the near future. There just isn't a huge amount of demand in a place like Ahwatukee for that. There may be much more in North Central Arcadia and up in the Sunny Slope, but it's understanding the differences. One of the things, for example, I, look, I, I grew up for 10 years on a farm. If you want to find someone who cares about the clean water, clean air, and a good environment, talk to a farmer. Their life depends on it. Um, I'm for those things. What I'm not for is the, the frankly, sort of helter-skelter nature of the environmental movement. You're pushing for the electrification of the automobiles in this country, okay? Well, you better have a plan to build the power plants I mean, right now we're, we're throwing that stuff away. We're running out looking to spend city money planting EV charging stations on our streets where people parallel park. How many times have you pulled up to a parking meter that doesn't work? We're, we're not equipped to really do that, and there's a billion dollars in venture capital sitting on the sideline right now ready to do that. What they've found is people want to charge in their homes, they want to charge in parking garages, they want to charge at grocery stores and places they're going to be for a long time but we're throwing money at a solution that, frankly, no one is actually asking for. It doesn't make sense. We've got to start asking the environmental movement to make a little bit more sense. Before I respond, I gotta make sure I heard the question. I, 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 it was just we'll with the, the question for you. It, it was essentially, if you are elected, what are the three things you're gonna push? I'm sorry. I, If there is any specific three. Thank you, and I, I, and I apologize. I, I think just sitting back here, I can't hear it as well. Um, I think the three things that I would like to see happen is a better educated citizenry, especially when it comes to water. Because that's what I'm hearing time and time again, is folks don't know what they could be doing. That's number one. If it's an incentive-based program, and there are opportunities for that, both with APS, um, SRP and through the city. I think we need to, and that's a part of that educational process of putting, pushing that information out there to make sure folks know what they can do. You know, from a um, sustainability standpoint, we need to do more. I don't know exactly for sure what all that more is, but I think we do find that out by talking to folks, bringing people together, maybe having some focus groups where we talk about things. I know up in the um, Sunny Slope neighborhood, there have been some issues surrounding um, refuge pickup, garbage pickup, and how to better serve that community that then is um, much more efficient, cheaper, and better for the air and the vehicles that will be used by the city. So there's a host of opportunities for us to, to take on. I just think we have to sit down and figure out which ones make the most sense, which could be prioritized, and which make the best um, would work most effectively in our in the different neighborhoods that we have. 
Hi, thanks for everybody, for the both of you. This thing's not working. Yeah, sure. It is, okay. Um, uh, my question is for um, uh, Sam Stone. Um, you are running to replace the current incumbent, and you've been on his staff for many years. My question to you is, how will your service be different? And what are those specific issues that you may differ from or agree with um, with the former council member um, that you'd like us to know? So what I didn't know when I took the job with Sal was that he had been in office at that point 17 years and his longest lived chief of staff had made it about a year and a half. Um, I survived five years with him because we had a knockdown drag out brawl twice a week. Um, which is, is good for both of us. We're both a little feisty from time to time and help keep us on our toes. But you know what? I have a lot of disagreements with him. I thought Sal was a little too close to the development community. I thought he was a little too stuck on sort of the anti-pension drive and a lot of those things that frankly we need to have at the city to attract a good workforce. So I would go a little crazy with that. The other one is incentives around the kind of infill growth and development we want. I, I support being able to use the full range of development tools. City of Phoenix uh, development director Chris Mackey is I think the single best development person in the state of Arizona and right now she's operating under kind of a, a, a set of handcuffs. We need to free her. We need to free that department. We need to bring in the growth both in terms of housing and affordable housing but also in terms of the private business development that we need. We've done a very good job bringing nonprofits, ASU and re related nonprofits into downtown. We need to start focusing on bringing in businesses that also generate revenue. Do you, you have anything that you'd like to, Candidate Robertson? Well, a response to. It was yeah, a I mean, question. if you want, yeah, you can turn the question around and ask. So they were asking what would be three things to do. Okay. What? Is that correct? Is that correct? You were the one that asked the question, so I don't want to speak specifically for you. about the. Just see if I can clarify, because sure. I don't know if I asked the question exactly how I want. Um, uh, my question is really around ideology uh, and the difference between your ideology and your, your boss's ideology. And is that going to carry through? And by the way, I'm a District 6 resident, so I'm, I'm really interested in the question. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, in the initial question and the reason I, I was a little perplexed, obviously it was a question directly for Sam about um, Councilman DeCicio, and I, I think he more or less explained that. What I will do is maybe I'll just take in a little bit different direction and explain how I'm different from Sal. I, I think that is something, I know it's something that the constituents have um, been curious about. I was knocking on a door a few weeks ago, and I think this is the best illustration I can give you. Knocking on a door, the guy came to the door. He was a little bothered that um, you know I was knocking on his door. Told him what I, what was going on, runoff election, who I was, and he said, "Okay." He says, "Answer one question for me." He says, "I don't necessarily get along with the guy currently in the in the job. How are you going to be different from him?" And I simply stated, and I, I started to go down one path, and I stopped myself. I said, "I'm going to answer the phone." I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to listen to you. So we ended up talking for another 10 minutes just about that issue. 
And when he shut the door, he says, you know, I wasn't going to do a whole lot about this campaign before he shut the door. He said, I wasn't going to get involved, but now I'm going to. He thanked me for letting him know that I cared enough that I would listen to him. And I think when you talk about the differences between me and anyone else for that matter, I can just tell you how I am going to do it. How I'm going to do it is take the time to listen to folks. You know, to this point, we've knocked over 6,000 doors since the first of the year. We're out there talking to folks on almost a daily basis, making sure they understand more completely about who I am and how I go about problem solving. And the easiest way to do that is to listen to folks, understand their position, understand the impact that it might have in the communities and the neighborhoods, on the businesses, and then I am better suited to make a decision. So I made sure he understood that. Okay, so at this time, to, you have a question? Yes. And after this question, we're going to go ahead back to uh, panel, panelists, and they're going to have uh, some farther questions, and then we'll come back to the audience and give you guys the last chance to ask questions. What is your plan to combat homelessness in our community? Um, what is the plan to um, combat homelessness in our community? I think some of the things that we can do are some of the things that are going on right now. You look at what Houston and Austin have been able to do. City of Houston has reduced its homeless population by over 60% in the last two years. So they have the right thing going. And what they have been doing is it's been about collaboration. It's been about partnerships. So I think the smartest thing that we can do is a lot of what we have been doing, but a more focused approach when it does come to collaborating with the nonprofit organizations, organizations in that, in that area, with businesses small and large um, alike, local business, federal business, uh, local government, federal governments, a little bit of everybody coming together, understanding more completely what the problem is, where we want to go, and that is reducing the number of homelessness. There are a host of issues why people are homeless. We have to understand that. We have to make, we have to make things available to folks. There are programs, the 80-20 program that I really like, when it helps people to attain housing so that they're not, um, they're not priced out of the market. There, there are things that we should be doing for the betterment of the entire community. And it helps, it helps businesses, it helps everything. We're moving in that direction, but it's gonna take more, like I said, of a um, concerted effort for collaboration to ensure that we're addressing the issues that need to be addressed, the issues with, um, you know, the substance abuse, mental illness. One of the fastest growing homeless populations are the elderly who are being pushed out of their homes because of skyrocketing um, rent rates, rents. So it's coming together, making sure we understand the issues and work collectively to solve them. Well, this is one of the areas where we have a pretty significant disagreement between us because I've worked and talked with all those organizations. They are collaborating. We've gone in the city of Phoenix from spending about $3,000 per homeless person per year to now spending $20,000 per homeless person per year. Does it look like that's having a positive impact in this community? Certainly doesn't to me. San Francisco is spending more than uh, like seven times what we are. LA, LA County are now at $250,000 per homeless person per year. That seemed like it's working. The current system needs to change. There are certain organizations that are leading with services instead of 
continuing with the housing first approach. The problem with housing first is that we're required by federal law to devote all our resources to the 10% of the homeless population that are most resistant to services. And we get them in a house or get them in an apartment, but we place no, you know, other, we ask them if they want to attend treatment, but we don't put any pressure on them to do so. And then they end up turning that into a flop house, drug house, and they get evicted, they're back on the street, but they go right back to the top of the priority list. We have to separate chronic street homelessness from transitory homelessness, people who are just homeless big circumstance as opposed to having significant problems with addiction, mental illness, or other trauma. And so right now the federal law is very restrictive on that point, but it doesn't need to be. Phoenix can move past our current paradigm and start doing far better if we copy the approach of people like the Salvation Army, Phoenix Rescue Mission, and others who are, out, are providing shelter up front, but then are really focused on getting people into treatment, getting them well, and getting them the long-term service support they need to get back into the community. And lastly, we're missing a huge opportunity right here on, on Van Buren Street. Van Buren and 18th St. Luke's Hospital is currently sitting empty. That's about a $300 million building. We can get for $30 million in land value and use it as an initial intake, treatment, and assessment point. We should be doing that via an intergovernmental agreement with the rest of the state. That is an opportunity we're about to miss and we should absolutely not do so. Okay, we're gonna uh, go back to the panel questions with uh, candidate Stone. In May of 2021, the City Council established the Office of Accountability and Transparency, OAT, to provide civilian oversight of administrative investigations of misconduct allegations against members of the Phoenix Police Department how will you ensure that OAT is able to fulfill its stated purpose? Well, first, OAT was designed as an investigative agency, and the state has banned it from being an investigative agency, so there's essentially no point to having the OAT board right now. We have citizen insight on multiple levels throughout the disciplinary process for officers, and we have a court system. Do we need to, at times, do a better job of holding police accountable? Yes, we do, but I think Jerry Williams did a very good job of that in her tenure, and I think, generally, Phoenix has done a good job of that. Why do we have more police shootings here? Well, look at what's happening in Chicago, New York, a lot of cities. They've simply pulled back from enforcing the law in many communities, and those communities are suffering a horrific wave of violence as a result. Phoenix has seen an increase in violent crime, but we haven't seen the same level of increase as a lot of those cities because our officers are still engaging in every community as best they can. We have to support them. One of the best things we could do is recruit enough officers to have two officers per patrol car. That's actually gonna be a major de-escalator in situations because the officer feels more comfortable and they have someone to watch their back and they're not making panicky decisions. In the, all the time I was in Sal's office, we tracked very closely every police use of force case. And there were only a handful of them where the officer truly acted out of policy. In every one of those cases, that officer did face repercussions up to and including being sentenced by the courts. That's what needs to happen. We should not be bringing anti-police activists into a role where they're allowed to investigate police and right now that board ha has no authority, has no power, and it's essentially a jobs program for people who have uh, made a living protesting cops. 
the OAT program is not working out the way it was intended. It is not. And the reason being it was shortcut out of the state legislature by some, some additional laws, and you know, Sam mentioned that. But what I think needs to happen, and this is coming from someone who spent 36 years in law enforcement, and I think um, more experienced than, than, than most, we do have to have oversight. Um, we have, over the years, have had more citizen input with the disciplinary process and the use of force process within the Phoenix Police Department than most cities in the United States. As a matter of fact, they came here to learn from us. I was the chairperson for our disciplinary review board for 13 years, the use of force board for about three and a half years. So I don't know that there's anyone that understands that better than I, but what we cannot ignore, we cannot ignore what's going on around the country and the perception that folks have about law enforcement. What we need to do is to demonstrate that Phoenix is better than that. I think we're doing a good job. They're moving in the right direction with a lot of different things. And I think we continue to do just that. We have to, and the, the council is a perfect, uh, perfect vehicle to make sure that happens, is to number one, demonstrate support to, to good policing. That is job one. Um, support good policing and when it's not up to the standards that we expect as a city of Phoenix we need to do something about it and that's to me it's not a hard lift I think most people understand that most professions have oversight of some sort and there's absolutely nothing wrong with law enforcement having such oversight and like I said with Phoenix I don't know that there's anyone um, better versed at it and understanding it than I am um, the Department of Justice is here now looking at a host of things with the Phoenix Police Department. That's why I believe my position on the city council would be someone who could help the rest of the council understand in a more complete manner what the Justice Department is doing, what they're looking for, because I've worked with them in the past on a variety of projects and issues, and I think it's important that people understand. Thank you both. Next question is, how will you... How will you encourage business development and jobs creation in the district and citywide? Um, business creation and job development in the district, more than anything else, I think the biggest issue, and this is what I've heard in talking to the business owners, is to streamline the, the permitting processes. We have to make it easier for folks to conduct business not just in the city, but specifically in the council district. And we do that by ensuring that when they apply for a permit, when they're doing whatever it is they need to do, it's sped up. We, and I think a part of that's gonna have to be, people are gonna have to be back in the offices. A lot of that's not occurring right now. I talked to some folks the other day who were downtown for a meeting and Two of them were in the office and everybody else is on a screen. And I think we can be more effective in communicating what concerns and issues folks have when they're in that process by talking to them face to face. But as long as we have a variety of folks working from home, it's gonna, I think it's gonna be problematic. It's gonna keep pushing things out further. And I think that's the frustration that people are having. First off, Kevin's right about those things. I've been talking about them for a year and a half. So he, he does listen and learn. Um, but folks, the biggest thing is job force, workforce training, workforce development. We don't have it. We don't have enough of it. We have college graduates. We have very low-skilled labor. 
we don't have enough high-skilled labor, we don't have enough people to take all the jobs, and that's something that we absolutely have to improve on. I'm a big supporter, for instance, of anti-recidivism programs like the new Freedom Center up on I-17. They're taking people out of jail where they're starting working with them three to six months before they get out of prison. They're helping them develop the skills and training they need to get into the workforce and to improve their lives and to provide the workforce that our city needs to move us forward. But it also, look, we're gonna have to start talking to our federal government a little bit on this one. Um, city of Phoenix pays for federal lobbyists. I might not always love that idea, but right now we need them to start pushing back on some things. And one of the things the city should be looking to do is to push for a return to the Bracero program from the 1970s, the guest worker program that was highly successful in bringing construction workers, farm workers, and others here who wanted to come seasonally and be able to work and, and then go home, come back as they needed to help support their families. That is something that I would be pushing for the city of Phoenix to lobby heavily for. It's absolutely essential that we increase workforce opportunity. We have a huge overhang of baby boomers retiring, and those folks are gonna leave a giant hole in our workforce and economy unless we find ways to patch it intelligently. And right now, we're just not making enough effort in that area, and that's the best thing we could do for small businesses is make sure they have the people that can help them succeed. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, we're going to um, continue on. Uh, this is for candidate. Uh, public safety is a partnership between law enforcement and the community. Public safety in your district. Do I need to repeat it? Mike's cutting. It, the, the question was, do I espouse community policing and, and how it can benefit the district? Absolutely, I do. One of the best things we have in our police force are community action officers. We've recently, though, had to take a lot of them off of that duty and move them more into patrol duties and other areas. We need to expand the number of CAOs that we have. We have an, an amazing CAO in the Arcadia area named Lindsay Smith. Um, for folks who know Lindsay Smith, I think she's one of the great stars of the police department. Everywhere she goes in that district, she knows all the homeless people by name. She knows all the business owners by name. She walks in, she's able to communicate with them directly on a very personal level, and we need more of those. We also need the citizens to know that they should be talking to and engaging our police officers on the same kind of level. I tell people all the time, if you see an officer parked in your neighborhood, Go over, wave to them, get them to roll down the window, introduce yourself, get a business card from them. Try to build those community ties in both directions. You know, I, I grew up in a very small town. We knew every police officer in town, right? Well, no one feared the police when, when they're people that you know. Even when people did something wrong, they understood they weren't gonna be fighting back against them. And you're never gonna be able to do that in a large city but we can do that to a significant degree through our CAO program. And that is the connective tissue that we need to expand and which has been cut back and, and should not be cut back at all. We should be adding more and more officers into that program and engaging directly in our communities. 
The idea and concept of community-based policing is just that. The community having a say-so in the problems in their area and how to solve those problems. And you're able to do that most effectively by having police officers, uniform officers working in the neighborhoods collaboratively with the, um, the residents. And Phoenix has, over the years, won numerous awards for its community policing efforts. It's a process that is still in place in most neighborhoods. The officers have great um, rapport with the community, and the community, in turn, get along great with the officers. And there was a movement to move officers or the community officers, action officers, out back to patrol, but that has since been rescinded because people understand the importance of it. So the community action officers, for all practical purposes, are full force throughout the organization because we do recognize, or law enforcement has recognized, the importance of um, that collaboration, that partnership. Thank you both. So our last panel question is, um, we've talked a little bit about the jobs issue in the city, not only is the police department down in numbers, but just city jobs in general, certainly could be due to the great resignation and other reasons, but what ideas do you have for attracting diverse and qualified candidates for city jobs? You know, how we attract people to Phoenix is doing what we have been doing. And what I mean by that is demonstrating, using specifically the city of Phoenix itself as an employer, demonstrating how good of an employer it is. Most recently, uh, this, the mayor and city council, and the mayor was the driving force behind it, saw to it that the Phoenix police officers are the highest paid officers in the state of Arizona. That's the first step. Second step will be a declaration or a demonstrative effort on, the, on all city employees to show that it is a good place to work, that it has a lot of positives about it. And how we attract a diverse workforce, the city manager is doing that. If you look at the leadership throughout the city of Phoenix, it is more diverse than it has ever been in the history of Phoenix. And when people see that, they hear good things about the city and they understand who the leadership within the city is, they are more apt to want to be a part of it. And that's how you drive that diversity to the city. They're doing it by, um, by walking the walk and talking the talk, and I expect the city to continue with that. Being specific about public safety, both police and fire, both police chief and the fire chief have made a um, a promise to better diversify their, their organizations, and I think it's critical that we do that. And that's done, again, by showing support for the organizations themselves, by not just the council and the mayor, but also by the community. And I think we're moving in those directions. I look at the relationships that folks have with the city, and it's positive. People want to work with the city. They want to make sure we do the things that we need to do in the communities that we need to do them in. Oh, I, I mean, I would fully agree. I think the city's done an excellent job with the diversity of our workforce. We have an exceptionally diverse workforce at the city, but where we haven't done well is in recruiting people to fill certain skilled positions, from policing to engineers, attorneys. There's a number of areas where we have a real deficit. But one of the problems we have is that every year they treat everybody the same, which sounds like a good idea until you realize that what it means is you have a lot of people sitting in middle-level management jobs for an entire career. 
when frankly we have opportunities if they want to make more money to move them up. We have a ton of applicants for those positions. We don't have any particular trouble at this time recruiting for the fire department. We have a ton of good applicants for every position, but we do for police. Where we are short in key positions, the additional monies need to flow to those positions until we can adequately fill them. So if you want to talk about permitting delays, for instance, we don't have enough engineers and plan reviewers to do the job. And a lot of the ones we do have are very young and inexperienced and it takes a long time to get them up to speed. We can't attract the best talent. So if you want to do it, stop giving everyone the exact same raise every year just for being there, and start giving them raises for achievement and for the, and for the positions where we're having the most difficulty bringing new talent on board. And that really is something very different than what we've been doing. You see us every year, we give out a, a cost of living increase and then about a two and a half, usually two and a half percent raise across the board. Well, look, what we need to be telling those in middle management there is, look, if you want to make more, we have a fantastic HR department that will give you every opportunity, will support you in your educational journey, will support you in lateral transfers, vertical transfers, anything you want to do. We need to stop just handing out raises in positions where we have a ton of qualified applicants. And the job, you know, if you're ending up with someone who is a, a clerk at the lower levels, and they're making a six-figure salary after being in that position for 20 years, we should have found a way to move them up to a position when they're more valuable before that and not just leave them sitting there. And we have that. We need to incentivize it. Thank you both. OK, at this time, we're going to open it back up to the audience. Uh, uh, please feel free and ask. It's good to see you, young man. Should constituents be worried about rumors surrounding a candidate's residency in the district? I think maybe that was for me. Um, for those of you who do not know, um, several months ago there was a question about my residency. What I will tell you is that without a doubt, my wife and I reside in the city of Phoenix. Now, be it good, bad, or indifferent, you don't have to necessarily like it. My wife and I are also fortunate enough to own a couple of different properties and residences. We have property in San Francisco. We have property in Scottsdale. We have property in Colorado. And people will cherry pick and say, well, you live in Scottsdale. No, we do not. And for those of you who aren't aware of it, it we were taken to court on it. It was proven in court that I was a resident of Phoenix. Then there was an appeal because someone said that the judge's wife signed my nominating petition. So it went to the state Supreme Court, and the state Supreme Court decided it in the matter of hours that I was a resident in Phoenix. Now, I know people are going to continue with that, that you live in Scottsdale. I can't help that. The fact of the matter is my entire professional life, and actually my entire life, I have been someone of integrity, that has never been questioned. If you want to go out and say those things, it doesn't bother me because you're going to say that anyway. You, and the facts don't have to get in the way of a good story. But the fact of the matter remains, the residents I have talked to, it's not an issue with them. Well, obviously, I live in the district. Look, a judge let him stay after he rented a house he didn't live in in Ahwatukee in the first part of this election, and now he's bought a place in the Biltmore. 
I don't know if he's actually living in it or not, or if he's still living out of his Scottsdale house. Once his city of Phoenix career was over, and as an assistant police chief, he was required to live within the city of Phoenix. When his career was over, he moved away. Moved away to Scottsdale. And so, you know, that's a choice he made. I am been focused on Phoenix. I didn't move away. I've focused here my entire, really, 30 years now. Um, I, I don't know what else to tell you. There's one of us that's been deeply vested in this district for the last five years, and one of us who hasn't been living there. Uh, I'm gonna get some people, I'll come back to you, but let's get part ask the question. Go ahead. Hello, and this is for both of you. Phoenix is a very dynamic city, and it's experiencing dynamic growth. What are some of the changes that y'all propose once elected to try and keep up with the dynamic place we live? So Phoenix has reached really the end of the usefulness of our current general plan and downtown plan and the various overlays. The ideas behind it are good, but it's time to revisit that and take it back to the public. That's one of the things that I've been campaigning on throughout this thing. We, we have a very important challenge in front of us. We have a lot of people, like I said earlier, who are just opposed to any new growth, don't want anything to come in near them, don't want new height, new density. But one of the things I proposed, I'm probably the only major municipal candidate in the country who's willing to put that wherever we put in high capacity transit, be it BRT, light rail, that sort of thing, we have to have by right height and density along there to both to justify the investment in the transit system, but also to make sure that we don't turn into Los Angeles or these cities that have opposed growth and ended up with much larger problems. At the end of the day, I really like the idea that Portland had back in the 90s for concentric circles. We have a number of urban villages around the city. What we need to do is look at the concentric circles development model that Portland pioneered and start drawing those circles around those urban cores and allow for by right height and density growth in those cores as each concentric circle is filled from the inside out. So there's a lot of things we can do to help mitigate the difficulty and transit also has to be a big part of that. But at the end of the day, we're gonna go through a very difficult period. There's gonna be more traffic, there's gonna be more people, there's gonna be more density. And you can try to say no to those things, but if you do, we have this high-tech industry that's moving in. These folks can afford any apartment, they can afford any house, they can afford any, any vehicle to travel in. What they're doing is forcing out the people who are already here. And so when you oppose that growth, you're not harming those people who are moving in here. That was the Silicon Valley problem that exploded into the housing issue that Los Angeles, San Francisco, and all of California now have. We have to take a much more proactive route and really get aggressive on how we manage development going forward. You know, one of the things we have that um, can help us continue to grow in an effective way, in a manageable way, is the Phoenix City Plan. It lays things out for the, the core part of the city, the downtown area, and it moves out. What we have to remember is what goes on in downtown Phoenix impacts the entire rest, not just the rest of Phoenix, but the entire region around Phoenix, all the other cities. 
we need to pay attention to that plan. It was voted on. It needs some tweaking. The tweaking's coming up later this year, early next year. It'll be put back out to the voters. And what that does, it gives us a plan. It takes politics out of it. It allows us to move forward and grow as a city with the appropriate input from the experts in the various fields as well as the residents throughout the entire city. So using the city plan as the, um, the roadmap is the ideal way to go about it. And folks will always have an opportunity for impact as um, time gets closer to any changes that need to be made with that. Anyone else? Anyone else? Did I hear it? <laughs> Come on, sure I did. You got a question. It's a hostage. All right. Well, <clears throat> let me just say. You got a question? Yeah, oh, Hold on. Hold on so that everybody can hear it. Yeah, it's fine. They tell me I'm loud. Anyway. It's okay. What changes would you like to see occur? Are, are you referring to changes in the general plan? No, it's over. Realistically, we're at a tripping point. Um, we're at a point where a lot of cities have found themselves and not handled it very well. So the change we need is really to be more, more creative going forward. We can't just continue to throw money at programs that aren't succeeding and expect different results because look across the country, those results never change. So really what I'm focused on there is bringing new ideas to the table on this. I can go and talk to all the people around the city, which I've, I've done for years about these issues, but you also need someone who will come in and actually bring fresh ones of their own to the council. Just saying that we're going to continue doing the things we've been doing is not enough. We have to get creative. And I'm a big believer that when you have a program that's failing, you don't just throw more money at it. You try something different. And if that fails, you try something different again. And you keep going after these problems, but not get tied down in a paradigm of having to do things a certain specific way. And too often, that's been the case in our government. They get locked into something, and the only answer ever is more money. Well, we don't have any more money to throw at these things. So we better start getting real creative about how we go after our problems. I think you bring more people to the table. You make sure that you're hearing from folks, that they are, um, that they know that they have an, an important voice in how the city progresses and how the city changes. We have the, the village planning committees throughout the city, in Ahwatukee, in the Camelback, in Maryvale, and a host of each one of our um, villages through, around the entire city. You make sure you change those, um, those members out, that they don't stay there for an extended period of time. And what you do see is folks who have been in some of those positions for a very long time. You see folks who happen to be maybe developers or zoning attorneys who have a vested interest. I'd like to see a greater, broader sense, a more diverse group of individuals, especially with neighborhood, um, neighborhood folks sitting on those committees. Because I think that's how you make the difference. You listen to folks, you bring in a diversity of ideas, and you, you know, you, you, you listen to folks. I mean, that's really what it comes down to, and not be afraid to try things new 
um, doing things differently is never a bad thing. <clears throat> okay, at this time, I would like to first of all thank everyone for coming out tonight. Our next uh, order of business is going to be that each candidate will have three and a half minutes to give their closing remarks. But before that, I would just like to say thank you for coming out tonight, you know, finding your busy schedule to come out to seek some information. As we always say, you know, the more information that we have, the better we can make and live with, right? I'd also like to give a round of applause to the candidates for their willingness to serve us. So is there any final questions that you may have for the candidates before we go into our closing remarks? Okay. That, did I see a hand? Okay. That being the case, uh, you gentlemen would like to start giving your final remarks. Well, folks, thank you for coming tonight. I really appreciate you all being here and taking the time to do this. As I say all the, all the time to people when they come to events like this, that makes you a little unusual. Because everyone else is home kind of enjoying their dinner and watching some TV and tuning out on this kind of stuff. And so I think it's really fantastic to see everyone here tonight. And I appreciate the opportunity we've been granted here by the sponsoring organizations, NAACP of Arizona, League of Women Voters, 100 Black Women of Arizona, and the First Institutional Baptist Church. I was gonna say First International the first time, and I knew I was about to get it wrong and, and stop, so. Um, folks, I really thank you all for being here. This, this process oftentimes gets a little chippy, and maybe this campaign will be a little chippy at times, but I think there's been a great dialogue back and forth throughout the campaign. When we had all the eight candidates in the initial field, I thought you had a really good representation of different parts of this district, different ideas, different philosophies. And so I've been really enjoying the opportunity to get to know everyone along the way, uh, including Mr. Robinson here. So uh, I, will, I will say this for sure. I don't think there was a single bad person in this campaign, in this race. I certainly don't think Ill, Ill of Mr. Robinson at all. I thank him for his service. The reason I'm asking for everyone's vote and everyone's support is we are at a turning point, and this city desperately needs new and fresh ideas. I've spent years talking to all the stakeholders involved at every level, and my goal is to bring those fresh ideas to the city of Phoenix. And I think if you go and look at the websites that we have and the talking points we have, there's a reason that my tagline for this campaign is policy, not platitudes, because I'm, I'm tired of touching the surface and not really digging in. And it's time we started hiring people who really dig into how things work and trying to figure out how to make them work better or find different ways to do things. And that's why I'm running. That's why I'm asking for your support. And again, thank you all for being here. I will echo Sam's um, comments about being here. We do appreciate it, and we have been at this for some time now. But what I will tell you when it comes to being your representative on the city council, it comes down to character. And for 36 and a half years, I served this community as a Phoenix police officer, rising through the ranks, having done a little bit of everything, worked in every part of the city, worked with every different city department, and you know, it, it, was, it was a passion to serve people 
and to ensure that they had better opportunities in their lives. I say it's about character because what I would ask you to do is truly look at my entire background. For the last almost, I was going to say I'm almost 63 years old, but I'm almost 64 years old. I would ask that you look at my, my background for the last 64 years and then ask yourself, am I someone that you would want as a representative on the city council? Because there's no doubt in my mind I will do a good job. There's no doubt whatsoever. I have the ability to communicate. I've had the ability to partner. I have the ability to to help mold a consensus on issues that may not necessarily always be popular or easy to deal with. It's about character because there's nothing in my background that you're going to find that is misogynistic, that is bigoted, or anything along those lines. So please look. Look at past Twitter pages and comments and a host of things that tells you who the person really is. I'm the genuine person. I live in Phoenix. I have always followed the rules. You're not given the awards and the accolades and the responsibilities that I have been given over the years where you're cutting corners and doing things and saying things about people that are just hateful. You don't move forward that way. And you don't, in my honest opinion, deserve to be on a city council when you have a reputation that truly is questionable as to whether or not you really like your fellow man. There's absolutely nothing in my background that would demonstrate such a thing. And I'm speaking for myself. So I would ask that you consider character as you go about deciding who it is that you're going to support and why you're going to support them. Because I will continue to be the person I have always been, without a doubt. And what they, you know, that old saying is, you know, believe someone when they tell you who they are because chances are they are. So thank you very much. I um, appreciate, again, everyone's time and effort. I think these things are useful so that people can really understand who it is, who we are. And I can honestly say Sam and I are 180 degrees different. We just are. I just think that I'm a better fit for the city council than he is. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for listening. This has been a bonus episode from The Gaggle, a politics podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. For more on the Phoenix runoff election, be sure to listen to our episode with Republic reporter Taylor Seeley. We'll see you next week.